So, obviously you guys, I'm sure, figured out that the he mentioned in verse 17 is Paul. That the Apostle Paul has spent, as he mentions in this this section, three years in Ephesus. That means he's been in this place, Ephesus, more than any other place that he was on his missionary journeys. He spent more time there than anywhere else. And in those three years, he he found himself... um, connected to these people in a very deep way. I mean, he, I think we get an indication that he was so connected to the people at Ephesus that he had to bypass Ephesus to meet with the church leaders in Miletus. In other words, he could have stopped in Ephesus and met with them there. But you get this idea that if he would have, it would have been just this emotional mess and everyone would have wanted a piece of Paul's time. So he goes, no, I need to meet with the leaders, but I'm going to do it about 30 miles away in Miletus. And so Paul goes over to Miletus and he calls for the elders. And one of the things we're going to see about this section is that uh, Paul speaks of elders and overseers as the same thing. So that when we talk about a pastor or a shepherd, or we talk about an elder, or we talk about a bishop or an overseer, those are all the same position it seems to be in Scripture. The reality is, is that Paul in this section is really addressing church leaders. And so you might think, okay, what's this got to do with me? Maybe some of you are thinking, I, I don't plan to be a church leader. I consider myself a church leader. Um, most of the people in church aren't church leaders. So why is this important? Well, it's important because I think what Paul does here is he gives us some indicators about what it takes to make mature disciples. We've talked a lot about disciple-making as we've gone through the book of Acts and the reality that God calls every Jesus follower to be a disciple who can make disciples. We're all called to be that. But we don't want to just make disciples. We want to make mature disciples. So what does it take to make mature disciples? What, What does that require? That's what we're going to really sort of look at today. And I hope that as we look at that, we'll get some practical application for us as well. So here's the first thing. I'm going to give you three basic things. The first thing is this. Mature disciples, they need examples to follow. And so in this first section, Paul starts off by sharing with the elders uh, from Ephesus about his own lifestyle. He says in verse 18, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you. And he goes on to talk about how he served the Lord with all humility. Uh, he, he mentions tears. There's a lot of tears in this section. I don't know if you noticed that. But he also talks about how he talks about uh, these trials that he had to do, endure by the plotting of the Jews. These would probably have been what we call now the Judaizers. That would have been people who, uh, who said they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they tried to teach the Gentiles that they had to become Jews before they become Christians. And so Paul dealt with these guys a lot. And it was a trial for him. It was difficult for him. Paul tried to love these guys. Paul tried to win these guys. They were hard to win. It was really hard for him. The point is, one of the the first thing we see about Paul's example, because Paul's a great example to follow, is that he displays what I'm going to call a humble perseverance. Now, some guys are good at persevering. They're just naturally fighters. I I, I tend to be a perseverer. I, I like to fight my way through. I don't like to quit. I want to give up easy. But I'll be honest, I'm not always, well, you probably know this, I'm not always a humble perseverer. I don't always persevere humbly. I persevere because I'm going to win. I persevere because I'm not going to give up. But I'm not always humble about it. Other people are quite humble. They're just, they, don't, they don't want to draw attention to themselves. They're not trying to exalt themselves. But things get tough and they quit. It's just too difficult, so they give up. Well, Paul was neither. 
Paul is humble. He, he, had a, he had the right view of himself. I wouldn't say a low view of himself, but he had a right view of himself. He knew except he was nothing except by the grace of God. And, and yet, in that humility, he knew he needed to persevere. He needed to, to, to hang tough when things got difficult. And that's a huge part of us being disciples who can make disciples, specifically mature disciples who make disciples. we got to develop this humble perseverance. We need to find people who we can look to who humbly persevere. And i got to say, they're the most, some of the most valuable people in the church because they're so rare. It's hard to find people who have that sort of determination. They just won't quit, but they're doing so not because, hey, I can do this, but because they, they want to follow God humbly. They want to serve the Lord. Paul was one of those guys. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 20, he says, he says how I kept nothing back to you that was helpful. The other thing that Paul did as a great example is Paul made sure he gave the church in Ephesus very thorough instruction. He said he kept back nothing that was helpful. If you drop down to verse 27, I love this, this verse, one of the, my favorite verses in Scripture. Paul says, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Which means he didn't hold back. He didn't shy away from difficult things. This is one of the reasons why we teach verse by verse. One of the reasons we spend so much time going verse by verse through Scripture is it keeps us from taking the coward's way. Because I'll be honest, I might be tempted to take the coward's way. I might want to avoid things that are difficult to talk about. But when you teach through the whole book of Bible, or the, uh, through whole books of the Bible, you can't just kind of camp on the doctrines that you like. You have to sort of deal with everything that's there. It's a very healthy thing to do. I'm not saying it's the only thing to do, but it's a healthy thing to do. And so Paul, he, he was willing to give everything. He was willing to share the stuff that was difficult, the stuff that would cause him to be persecuted. He didn't shy away from anything. He gave everything that was helpful. In fact, he would, he would thoroughly instruct uh, anyone and everyone who would listen to him. In verse 20 it says, he says, I proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and house to house. What that that means is he would go in those places, whether it be like a public arena, maybe uh, the prayer meeting with the Jews, maybe uh, in the synagogues, but also uh, in the marketplaces, he would get into discussions with these guys. But also, he would go from house to house. And don't think this was just like social calls. Have some cake and some tea and a, a short chat. Paul was wrestling with these people in these different homes. With their doctrine, he was discipling people. He was pouring into these people. And don't forget, too, the church met in homes. That's probably also a reference to the small groups that they met in. But also what he did with this, verse 21 tells us, is that in giving this thorough instruction, he called everyone that he talked to toward to a, what I would call a repentant faith. He says in verse 21, he testified to Jews and Greeks, repentance towards God, faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, repentance is not just turning away from sin, it's definitely that, but it's also turning to God. Repentance towards God. Because sometimes we can go, okay, this is a bad thing, i got to stop doing this bad thing, so we turn away from that bad thing, only to turn to another bad thing. But repentance towards God is turning away from the bad things in our life, and turning to God Himself. Saying, okay God, it's you I have to obey, not my sin. But we do that with, or, or, or we're enabled to do that through faith in Jesus. So repentance towards God, faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in what He's done for us, faith in what He's doing for us. 
Now these are two sides of the same coin. That's why I say this is repentant faith. This is what God calls all of us to. This is what Paul instructed everyone towards. This is why this tends to be a general application of pretty much every Bible study that I ever do. Because this is where it all leads. Let's turn back to God. Let's trust Jesus. It all leads back to that. So Paul was someone who would thoroughly instruct. But also, listen, Paul had a a real eternal perspective. He was a great example of that as well. Look at verse 22. Paul says, I see now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. Um, I think this is an indication that, that Paul knew in his heart of hearts that God was leading him to go there. And he says, I don't know what to expect except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city that chains and tribulations await me. Now this is important because Paul, uh, as an example of someone who had an internal perspective, he, he knew that what was going to happen to him was going to be difficult. And it's, it's, it's interesting, it's significant that the Holy Spirit was leading him towards something that was going to be difficult. Because we have a lot of people today who would say, hey, God's only going to lead you towards happiness and prosperity and all good things in your life. Well, here we see the Holy Spirit saying, Paul, it's going to get rough. It's going to get rough. And so Paul says, okay, I'm, I'm prepared for that. And this is why, verse 24, he says, none of these things move me. These don't bother me. These don't keep me. These don't change my, my path. And this is why, he says, nor do I count my life dear. Paul had an eternal perspective. Paul was one of these guys who, who would say amen to Jesus' call. That when Jesus says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Paul would say amen to that. Paul would say, I want to lose my life for, for Christ's sake and for his good news. Therefore, I'm not going to count my life dear. Even if things get really rough. Even if I lose my life, I'm not going to count it dear. That's why Paul said to the, in the Philippians, to the Philippians, remember he said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He says, <clears throat> uh, you know, he had this kind of eternal perspective. And in fact, it says, <clears throat> where I lost my place, sorry. Yeah, he says, and this is why too. He says, uh, I, want, I don't count my life dear so that, uh, verse 24, so that I may finish my race with joy. This is what Paul experienced, or what Paul knew he would experience in laying down his life, and in, in losing his life for Christ's sake in the Gospels. He knew he'd find joy. He knew he'd find at the end of his life there would be joy. Now remember, we've talked a lot about this in, in the book of Acts as well. Happiness is dependent upon our circumstances. But joy is dependent upon our perspective. And so he, he's, he's recognizing that when he has the perspective of, you know what, my life is hid with Christ, I want to lose my life for his sake in the Gospels, that's when I'm going to find his joy, even in difficult circumstances. But also he said he, he did this uh, so that also, that and he said the ministry, he wants to finish the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the Gospel of the grace of God. In other words, Paul knew he would serve well with that perspective, that eternal perspective. It's what motivated him to serve well. I mean, think about this in in very practical ways. Think about the things that we do that have eternal value. Doesn't that kind of purify how you sort of do ministry, how you treat people when you think about that? My wife always reminds me uh, that the only thing we take with us to heaven are people. When when our kids were small, she'd say, we only take our kids with us to heaven, so don't, don't ignore them, you know, spend time with them. We only take people with us to heaven. And it makes you realize that no, no matter what, 
calling God's put on our life, what vocation it is. He's put us around people to point them to Jesus by our lifestyle and by our words. And that's because they're going to spend eternity either with Him or without Him. So Paul this great eternal perspective, and he was, a, he was a great example of this. And this is what we need as mature disciples, or to become mature disciples. We need examples to follow. We need someone who's mature, someone who has, uh, a, shows or just displays a humble perseverance and, and thoroughly instructs us. They know what it means to walk with Jesus. They can explain what it means to walk with Jesus. And they have this eternal perspective. We need people like this. Here's the second thing we need. Mature disciples need healthy leadership. And this is the kind of context that Paul's talking about. Verse 28, Paul says, Therefore, remember he's talking to elders, he's talking to church leaders. He says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That is a seriously loaded verse, man. I could just do the whole half an hour on just that verse. I mean, think about this. Basically, Paul's saying uh, that a healthy leader is one who oversees God's church, recognizing that it belongs to him, not to them. He he sees himself as an overseer, someone who's taking a responsibility for that. I love this too because, excuse me, um, because he talks about, look, it's the Holy Spirit who made you overseers. Paul recognizes he didn't make anybody a leader. God called men and women to be, or men to be overseers. He called men to be overseers, and he called, as he called men to be overseers, uh, as the Holy Spirit called them, he just used Paul to get them ready to do that. He says that uh, he says he wants these guys to shepherd, to pastor the church of God, recognizing that God's purchased the church with His own blood. This is one of the clearest indicators of the deity of Christ, by the way. Speaking of the blood of God, of course, speaking of Christ, whose deity. Now, the Bible says in the book of Titus, Paul talks to Titus and he he says, Titus, look, I left you in Crete for this reason. You can set in order the things that are lacking, and here's an important one. And appoint elders in every city I command you. This is one of the priorities, I think, of every healthy church, is to develop healthy leadership. And I have to say, as we're doing that, it's really tough. Uh, Mike could tell you it's tough to be. Uh, a healthy leader. It's tough to help each other be healthy leaders. It's not an easy thing. We struggle with it. We really struggle to help each other do that. It's not easy to do this thing, but it's a really important issue. When Paul, Paul leaves uh, Titus and Creed, he says, look, there's a lot to set in order, but specifically, you need to appoint elders. Find men who can oversee, who see these people as those who are purchased with the blood of, the blood of Christ. Now, it's interesting, too, because uh, in this idea of the, of the church belonging to God, you know, the, Jesus called himself in John chapter ten. He called himself the good shepherd. You know, he, he he's you could say he's the good pastor. But also, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews thirteen, it refers to Christ as that great shepherd. So it's not just that he's good, that he's benevolent, that he has good desires for the sheep that he he shepherds, but also he's great. He's powerful. In fact, Peter calls him the chief shepherd. Now, uh, in, a, in a, I guess a technical sense, I would be the, the, the senior pastor of Servant Church, as far as like church documents are concerned. But in a reality, Jesus is the senior pastor of every church, of the whole church. 
He's the chief shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the good shepherd. Really, we're just sheepdogs as leadership, kind of barking the sheep towards the, towards the chief shepherd. Paul says this is what these guys, he wanted these guys to be. He says in verse 29, and this is one of the reasons why. He said, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, he says, Watch, remember that I warned you about these things. So, interesting that these, he talks about these wolves. I mean, this is another thing that healthy leadership does. It doesn't just oversee God's church belonging to God, but also it's protecting God's people from dangerous doctrines. And this is one of the things that's been creeping in, always creeping in the church. The church has always had to deal with false doctrine. It's not a new thing. It's always happened. This is why most of the letters in the New Testament were written to deal with false doctrine. And so we need healthy leadership that can do that. If we're going to grow maturity, we need healthy leadership that can discern that. And this is, again, it's, a, it's not a simple thing. Paul had to tell Timothy, he said, notice, take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. So remember, Paul discipled Timothy, but he still had to exhort Timothy, Timothy, listen, you better watch your life. You know, make sure you're walking the walk. And make sure you understand what's good, what's good doctrine. Take heed to yourself and your doctrine. He says, continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. You know what happens when leadership begins to get unhealthy? The congregation begins to get unhealthy. So Paul's saying this is really, really crucial that we have this. You know, Jesus himself warned us about false teachers. He said, beware of false prophets who will come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And this is the issue. This is why healthy uh, leadership is so important for mature disciples, because the reality is, sometimes it's hard to recognize. And, and, and we, we want you guys to recognize. We, I, I hope... And again, I'm sure uh, Mike would agree with this. We hope that you guys would feel like you could recognize if we were getting into something dodgy. And that you would feel like you could come and say to us, look, we don't think this is good. This doesn't seem to fit with the Jesus of the Bible. It doesn't seem to fit with Scripture. That's what healthy leadership means to do. Because sometimes, you know, you can have a guy who looks like he's a sheep, but he's actually a wolf. He wants to eat. So, hi guys. He also goes on to say in verse 32, he says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Notice what he says here. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. In fact, Paul goes on to say, Look, you know that I work with my own hands. And you guys probably know that the Apostle Paul uh, didn't take money from all the churches he ministered to, but often he would make tents, like we read earlier in Acts, where he was physically making tents with, uh, like, a, uh, oh, I just lost their names, Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, and, and, and that was kind of how he, he made an income. And he did that for a very good reason. He did that because he didn't want to burden these people. He wanted to be a blessing. He, in fact, he says, look, this is a good thing. He's telling the elders, don't be a financial burden on these guys. He says, because remember what Jesus said, it's more uh, blessed to give than to receive. Now, Paul doesn't, isn't teaching that it's wrong for leadership to be compensated. He's not teaching that at all. He said just the opposite in 1 Corinthians 9, that it's good to compensate your leaders. Paul chose not to be compensated, at least not fully compensated, because he wanted to set an example. 
And he wanted these guys who would be healthy leaders to do that. They'd be laboring for the benefit of others. That's why they did it. That's why they would do it. You know, maybe not so much here in the UK, but in the United States, uh, a pastor makes can make a pretty good living. And it can be pretty tempting for guys, especially because... Uh, it's not a matter of it's not a matter of you have to go to seminary before you can become a pastor. If you have the gift of the gab and you can gather a good music team and find a nice hall to meet in, you can get a bunch of people coming. And if you want to push tithing, you can gather some money. And and a lot of churches expect pastors to be paid well. And you can see how these guys, you can see how it might be a temptation for people to kind of get into ministry for that reason. And Paul was trying to keep people from doing that. He was trying to keep these leaders from, from having that kind of motivation. Again, not because they shouldn't have been paid, but because he wanted to make sure that they were laboring for people's benefit, not for their own gain. That's a major characteristic of healthy leadership. So, mature, making mature disciples. They need, uh, they need examples to follow. They need healthy leadership that will oversee them. And lastly, last couple of verses. Look at verse 36. Mature disciples need authentic relationships. And again, we've seen this theme all throughout. Um, we've seen this all, all throughout Acts, haven't we? Where Paul says, or it says of Paul, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. Now, I love this picture, and I, and I don't want to make a big deal of kneeling because obviously the Bible gives other uh, describes other instances where people prayed standing up, arms raised. So it's not like as if you're really spiritual if you kneel. But I have to say this. Personally, I've found the best way to pray is on my knees. I mean, just there's something about, it's not super comfortable, but it's something about your, your, as you're humbling, your, your, you're in that, that position that really does help humble you. And it's interesting that these guys said they kneeled in this public place together to pray. So I'm not saying you have to, but I just, if you're having a, a hard time praying, maybe what you need to do is find a way that helps you concentrate, but also find a way that helps your heart get in the right place. I find as well, I need to pray out loud. If I just pray in my head, I'm not, I, I pray in my head as well. If I'm driving down the road or if I'm you know, in a situation that's difficult, I'll be praying in my own, just in my head, Lord, please help me with this. Nothing wrong with that. But just to get along with God or if I'm praying in a group, I need to pray out loud or my mind's all over the place. Now, I think this is important too. It's not necessarily the main point of why Luke writes this down, but I do think when it comes to authentic relationships, there's a connection between praying with and for other people and being close to them. It's amazing how God will knit our hearts to people when we take the time to really pray for them. Really pray for them. One of the things I get convicted of is when I forget somebody's name, I'm not just convicted that I forgot their name. I'm convicted because often in my life, I'm exposing myself now, ready? Don't use this against me. But in my life, if I forget someone's name, I probably haven't prayed for them in a while. Or I'm exhausted or something. <laughs> I mean, it's just, but there's something about when I'm praying for people by name that my heart knits them. God knits my heart to those people. And when I'm, ag- when I'm with someone who's really weeping and we pray, or rejoice in and we give thanks. It really knits us with those people. Also, it says here that as, as he's saying goodbye after he prays with them all, they all wept freely. They fell on Paul's neck and they kissed him. Sorry, most of all, they're not going to see him again. I mean, this is pretty interesting. I mean, as a leadership team, you know, we're better friends than we were when we first met, but we never kissed each other. <laughs> There's the occasional hug, you know, but we've never kissed each other. But I would like to think that we would be close enough that we would weep if we lost 
someone else, if someone moved away. I would hope that we would have those kind of relationships with each other as a church, where it would really hurt. Because, I mean, isn't this... Even people who aren't emotional... You guys know me, I'm emotional by nature, so it's easy for me to cry. But even people who aren't emotional, they just don't cry very easy, they just don't show a lot of emotion. Even those people, in their closest relationships, don't they tend to, to feel that? They tend to get choked up, or they tend to feel something. Because the more authentic your relationship is, the more authentic your feelings become often. And I'm saying this again, not because I'm trying to make feelings out to be some grand or, or important thing, but I also think it's not healthy that we sort of act like no feeling is better. Like I'm more mature if I never show any feeling. What does that say about how we relate to each other? That we should be close enough that it, it does hurt. This is why I learned a long time ago, if people are hurt by my words, you know, if I say something and they're kind of hurt or they're offended that I, that I didn't call them about something or whatever the case might be, as much as something that used to annoy me, like, come on, quit being so sensitive. Then I realized, you know, that probably means they value our relationship. And I should go, wow, that's really cool that they actually value our relationship enough to be annoyed that I haven't talked to them in a while. We, we should have feelings towards each other. We should have those kind of real relationships. Again, I know it's going to look different for different people and it's not going to be, you're not going to have the same feelings for everyone. But I do think that's a real important that we have real relationships, that we really know each other, that we're not afraid to be hurt in front of each other. We're not afraid to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. So, Paul is exhorting these Ephesian elders because he really wants to see them uh, finish the work well. It's interesting to me as well, it's kind of sad, that when Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus, in a sense, he's got to raise up a whole new set of leaders. That even guys that Paul raised up didn't seem to follow through. And Timothy had to go back to Ephesus and fix the mess that was there. The reality is that we need to make sure that we are pursuing, we're wanting to be mature disciples, not just disciples. And we're looking to make mature disciples. Because if we're not, then we're going to find ourselves in a place where we're going to be like Ephesus. And we're going to have to start over every few years. So let's trust God for that. Amen.